And we'll turn uh, to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, uh, to hear there uh, Paul's instruction about uh, the gospel and how it works faith in our hearts. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, uh, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call? On him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And now we're going to turn uh, in the back of our Psalter hymnal to our Heidelberg Catechism lesson on page 882. At the risk of repeating myself, I will uh, point out before I read how repetitious our catechism is. We are in the third Lord's Day where the topic is still justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone. So there are a number of questions that teach this central gospel message uh, abundantly clearly here, really at the very center point of of our whole catechism. So beginning with question uh, 65... Uh, notice how our, our instructor is, is ingraining within us the centrality of our salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, on account of his works. Let's read responsively. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ 
and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. Well, I remember almost 30 years ago, scratch that, over 30 years ago, my freshman year of college in a writing seminar or some such thing, uh, being asked to read a Marshall McLuhan and his famous uh, conversation about the medium is the message. Uh, it's one of those age things where I realize, you know, that was 30 years ago and McLuhan had written that about 30 years before that. So in 1964, uh, Marshall McLuhan popularized the term, the medium is the message. The manner in which things are communicated is itself a form of communication. A 30-second television ad, no matter what the product or the message is, conveys the idea uh, implicitly that in 30 seconds you can get enough imagery, words, sounds to make a reasonable purchase decision or whatever action they're asking you to take. Reducing politics to bumper stickers or sound bites uh, suggests that our politics is superficial. Maybe it's a suitable medium for the messages we get in politics. Uh, Scrolling, Twitter, Facebook, obviously uh, his concerns about media in the 1960s can be multiplied and exponentially increased today. Now, it's kind of funny. I didn't realize this little detail. Originally, this this motto that he became so popular for was uh, the title of a chapter in one of his first major books, The Medium is the Message. And then uh, it was so... uh, Resonant that he expanded that idea and made it the title of his next book. So the title of his next book was The Medium is the Message. But according to him, there was a typo when it went to press. And it became The Medium is the Massage. Um, which he actually thought was really funny and quite fitting, right? Um, and he used to pun a lot on this idea that the medium is the mass age. Right? This mass communication age. Or the medium is the mess age. The age that has become a mess. Or a massage. Um, It's about how you feel. Right? It's not about what you think or the ideas. Um, And so, as we think about the insight of of Marshall McLuhan and the modern media landscape in which we live, um, I think there's relevance to the fact that four, five hundred years ago, The church and the scriptures taught us uh, that the message and the medium by which it is communicated 
must be and are integrally related to one another. Um, I submit that that's one of the ways to summarize our catechism lesson today. The message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, is communicated to us and requires, it demands, a particular medium. Otherwise, it can be twisted or distorted. And this is something that Michael Horton has written about. He says, uh, the, the message entails a medium or a media. And of course, the word media just means means. And in the church, we like to speak about the means of grace. The media by which we receive God's grace in Christ. And so for the last two Sundays, Lord's Days 23 and 24, the Catechism has been teaching the heart of the gospel message. What does it mean that you believe all this? That I, a sinner, uh, though I am still inclined to all evil, am declared righteous and holy, uh, not for my own sake or by my own merits, but by uh, the holiness, righteousness, and satisfaction of Christ alone. It is only this imputed righteousness which gives me uh, a standing of peace with God. And in today's lesson for the third week now, the focus remains on this gospel message. You heard how often it was repeated. It's by faith alone that we share in Christ and all its benefits. I love how the catechism teaches in its questions as much as in its answers. Parents, there's a good lesson there. Ask the right questions of your children, right? And question 66, this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Of course, we'll see in coming weeks as we look at the Lord's Supper, the resonance of that idea. As the Holy Eucharist, the Mass, was viewed in the medieval church as a continuing sacrifice. Right from the beginning, our catechism is concerned to say, no, they point us to the one sacrifice. This is part of the genius of our catechism, repetition. The catechism wants us, adults, and our children to learn that only on the basis of Christ's one sacrifice, accomplished on the cross, are we granted eternal life and forgiveness of sins. What a sweet, precious message that is. But this message, as you can imagine, perhaps in you today, but also in, in particular in the world of the 16th century, this message raises a question. Where does faith come from? Where do I go? What do I do to get this faith? This wonderful thing that, that grants me such blessing. What is the media? What is the means by which God gives it to us and delivers these blessings? Against the backdrop of the medieval church, uh, believers were given clear marching orders. Your faith is given you in your initial baptism, and you must continually work to improve it. You must take that seed of faith that's implanted in you and turn it into a, 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 a living thing formed and shaped by your works of love. Faith formed by love is what saves the medieval believer. And you can do uh, these works of love by going to church and making an offering and lighting a candle, saying prayers, going on pilgrimages. You can go to uh, the place where relics, holy relics are left behind. Uh, There are all sorts of things to do. There's a long, long list. In fact, it's an interminable list. Keep the feast. Don't eat meat on Friday of what you can do to improve your faith, to strengthen and confirm your faith. And then the scriptures come along. Luther comes along. The Reformation comes along and says... There's nothing you can do. It's a gift. And you see, we might wonder, well, is the Christian life meaningless? Is it just apathy? So what? What do I do now? The answer 
is God works faith in us. Yes, fully a gift, but he does it through means. And the Christian life, a major part of the Christian life, is enjoying and celebrating and sharing in the opportunity to enjoy and participate in those means of grace, to receive those gifts. So the second point here of my outline, the first point is the Holy Spirit works this faith in us. It is God himself. But the Holy Spirit isn't inside every individual uh, in its entirety, in all of its activity. Yes, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift. That's a separate conversation. But the Holy Spirit's not just out there in, in mysticism. The Holy Spirit comes to us and is pledged to be present and active in particular times and places. And the final two points in my outline is that the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit works through the sacraments. And we see the work of the Spirit in preaching very clearly in our text this morning, Romans chapter 10. Paul is contrasting the teaching of the law, the person who does the commandments shall live by them, and the teaching of the gospel. Christ, he says, is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. If you believe in Christ, that's all the righteousness you need. You can't add to it. You can't improve upon it. Christ has shown, furthermore, that the law cannot save, never was intended to save. It's not about our holiness or our pilgrimages to heaven or to the deep, the high places, the low places. The gospel message in chapter 10, verse 8, is this. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Faith is so associated with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, that you can just call the message the word of faith. The message of faith. The message of justification by faith alone is what Paul proclaims. Paul pits this message against the message of Moses, the righteousness that is based on the law, the person who does commandments. So where does this saving faith come? Again, Paul, and he's addressing this, right, because of the tragedy that this faith has not come where he expected it. It didn't show up among Israel when the Messiah came. That's chapter 9. But here in chapter 10, he says it comes from the proclamation of the word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of your doing. It is the gift of God. And God brings this gift. God comes near to us in the preaching of his word. The word is near you, Paul says. You don't have to go anywhere to get it. Paul continues to set forth the necessity of preachers to faith. Just a loose connection? Yeah, it's the cord. It's the cord. Oh, it's kind of... I'm not sure if that's going to improve things. Let me read here from chapter 10. How then... Maybe if I just stand still for a while, it'll be okay. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It is Christ, brothers and sisters, who sends out his labors to the harvest. It is Christ who, through his church, through his spirit, who puts the call upon men to preach the good news. And these men are beautiful, for they bring this good news to sinners, to whom and in whom the spirit works through that word to create and give faith. These men are sent. 
And so this is the work of God. It's not the work of any one individual, and it's not the work of any man. It doesn't come from within any man. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't pause here, now that we uh, regularly have the Schmore family joining us, um, but we have other families as well with younger children. Uh, Since there are young men in this room, to not, I would be remiss if I did not urge you to consider, now or at some time in the future, whether God might call you to be a preacher. This is, uh, in our age, not a very prestigious calling. It may, in the years to come, and in some places in the world today, depending on where you preach the gospel, be a dangerous calling. But it is a glorious calling and a holy calling. And so you should pray and ask God whether you might be called to such work. Paul's conclusion here, returning to the text, is faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see the key media, medium there. This is a very strong claim, and I think it uh, requires us to pause and ask whether or not we actually believe it. I think we tend to have a much more uh, modern, individualistic view of our faith. I could read a book, maybe hear about Jesus, maybe I watched a video online, do some research, um, maybe... Maybe it's sort of like a 12-step program. Maybe I discovered Jesus after hitting rock bottom. Maybe my circumstances in life. I mean, do I really have to hear? I mean, I know lots of people, right? That they became Christians and maybe they'd never been to church before. Do we really believe what this text seems to be teaching? Paul ties it powerfully to preaching. Now, there could be broader or narrower ways to, to conceive of preaching. But I think the key thing for us to reflect upon here is that we are dependent upon something outside of ourselves. It isn't introspection that gets us to gospel saving faith. It is a word that God sends that comes to us from without. The Holy Spirit works it in us through the means of the church, other people, the minister, ordinarily a preacher in a call to worship service. And I'm not going to defend a broad, extensive view, but The key here is faith comes from something outside of us. We don't have the means within ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. And Belgic Confession 28, talking about the church, says, We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it to be content to be by himself regardless of his status or condition. The church is gathered. And when the confession talks about the church being gathered, it's not that we we decided to throw a party and we all came together. It's that God gathered. The shepherd gathered his sheep into his sheepfold. We don't gather ourselves, I don't believe, in our confession. And so this idea from the ancient church, there's no salvation outside the church. St. Cyprian, an apostolic father, an early church father, is something that, again, rubs us Americans anti-institutional as we tend to be the wrong way. And yet it's consistent with our catechism and confession. And we should note further, I think, something very important here, that our catechism is speaking in a most precise uh, way, probably under the influence of Romans chapter 10 and other similar verses. I'll draw your attention to the fact that it says, The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. He doesn't say by preaching the Bible. Or by preaching God's word. He says by preaching the holy gospel. 
Earlier, the catechism asked us in question three how we come to know our sin and misery. And the answer given in question three is the law of God tells me. Not the Bible or God's word, but the law. So our catechism here is making a distinction between different messages, even as Paul does in Romans chapter 10. Different messages messages that are found in the scriptures, the law and the gospel. God's demands, his requirements of holiness, and his promises. And when the catechism later asks how we know that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is our mediator, the answer is similarly precise. Question 19. The holy gospel tells me. The law doesn't necessarily take you to Christ. But the gospel does. And in question 21, true faith is what the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. So it is these promises. It is uh, what our our catechism uh, teaches here as that promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins by grace because of Christ. That is the gospel. And that's the gospel message that when preached, crafts and works faith in us through the power of the Spirit. It is the word of Christ, the word of faith, the word of the gospel. Now, it's getting a bit ahead of us, but very useful to see how this gospel is defined in question number 66. This is God's gospel promise. Again, I've already read that part. The gospel is the message which conveys God's promise by grace. Now, when we are saved, the law is not abandoned. It comes along and tells us how we may show our gratitude. The Ten Commandments are yet to come in the catechism. Uh, Prayer, the law of our worship is yet to come in the catechism. This is fitting use for Christians to return to God's law and to to grow in their faith through its discipline. But that obedient thanksgiving, that sacrifice of praise, doesn't save us. It doesn't justify us. And the instruction, the command, the law that guides our Christian lives is not a source of power of the preaching of the word unto salvation. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice both in chapter 1 and in chapter 10, when Paul contrasts the gospel with the law, what does he do? He talks about Jews and Greeks. The Jews have the law. They have that wonderful holy kosher diet. They have the temple. They have all this stuff. But the gospel saves Greeks. Save sinners, Gentiles, strangers, foreigners. This brings us to the third and final point, which we aren't going to develop fully because it really introduces the following instruction of the catechism. The Holy Spirit also works particularly through the sacraments. The Holy Spirit confirms faith by the use of the holy sacraments. And these are called visible holy signs and seals. Uh, sacraments come from the domain of covenants. A lot of people think uh, a covenant is just another word for promise. Um, But that's like saying, you know, a a mortgage on a house is just the same as borrowing five bucks to buy a burger, right? There's a big difference. When When you get a mortgage on a house, it entails all sorts of paperwork. You have to get stuff with special seals on it. It costs a lot of money. You invest a lot in a mortgage, Um, A covenant, similarly, is a promise, a holy promise, a sacred promise that is sealed by signs and symbols. And so in a covenant, uh, the Hebrew idiom, for instance, in the Old Testament is that you cut a covenant. And we, we see that in Genesis 15, where animals are severed and cut apart. So their blood, uh, like, like blood brothers, uh, seals the promise. And that blood stands as a curse. 
the two people who make the promise walk between the animals. And uh, they are promising one another and to the gods as well in the ancient world. That if I break this promise, I will be like this animal cut in two. That adds to the weightiness and the seriousness and the holiness of a covenant. And so when we say that sacraments are signs and seals, they are promises that, uh, or rather the sacraments seal and signify promises that have a divine uh, component and that come with threats and warnings and blessings. This comes from Romans chapter 4. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. A sign and a seal. God has instituted these sacraments to make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel. They are designed in their simplicity to orient us and point us to Christ and his one sacrifice. The subsequent Lord days will show what baptism and the Lord's Supper signify in detail, but we can quite simply, and children, you should be able to know this quite simply, baptism is a washing, a cleansing. This is forgiveness. Our filth, our stain of sin and guilt is washed away. And also death and new life. You're buried under the waters and you're born again. The supper is a nourishing, a feasting. Baptism and birth happen once. Meals happen regularly. We have a supper and are nourished and God feeds us. Sacraments don't give us something other than the word. They confirm the same gospel message. It's this wonderful phrase. They focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation. And that's why they must be dominical of our Lord, the Dominus. Um, They must be only those sacraments that are instituted by Christ. Because they communicate to us the promise he made to us. And they are so simple. It's not a matter of having fancy special water in baptism. There's no special bread or wine. It's not about the richness of the elements. It's about the richness of the promises that they point us toward and convey to us. We'll see in coming weeks, uh, signification is quite obvious to most of us modern Westerners. uh, But the sealing function is a bit more challenging for us to understand. I think the short version of that is that a covenant is sealed to the people who are parties to the covenant. So the sacraments touch us. They seal us and mark us as members of this covenant community. The water of baptism has touched everyone who becomes a professing member in this church. One way or another, whether it happened when you're an infant or the day you become a member of this church as an adult, you've been touched. By the water, which signifies and seals a particular promise at Christ's command. And the bread and the wine are something that are tasted and felt and received and smelled by those who have been sealed by baptism and received those promises and come penitentially to receive it. These media are the message. And it's for that reason that we can't invent our own. It's God's gospel promise. There's a problematic tendency to broaden our idea of sacrament. It's, an, it's anything in the world that we can give some significance and, and conjure up some spiritual or sentimental feeling. We make all of life sacramental, some say. Although a sacrament is something, um, as though, rather, these people say that, that a sacrament is just anything 
that we can use to make us feel more spiritual. Yes, it's true. You can go out and walk in the woods and feel closer to the creator. And so material things, the creation itself, can lead us to God. But they don't lead us to salvation. The sacraments point us to Christ. The biblical design of sacraments is more precise. They seal the gospel promise. So we can't make them up or add to them. They are indeed Christ's and God's and the Spirit's gift to us, his church. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for the waters of baptism, which we expect to flow in this church this month as covenant children are baptized and made members of this community. We thank you for bread and wine, these symbol elements of our ordinary lives um, that are taken up by Christ to point to the spiritual life and the new creation that the Spirit works in us. We thank you for the gift of salvation, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and that Christ doesn't leave us alone, but sends us his Spirit to grant and, and create and to grow this faith in us. And we pray that this Lord's Day, through our fellowship with the saints, through the medium media of this church and our worship, that you would do that, that you would put the old man to death and strengthen and grow the new man within us. Through the promises of Christ our Savior and through his merits, we pray confidently in hope that this will happen. In Jesus' name, amen.